morning. Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And we will be finishing up chapter 3 this morning and moving on to chapter 4 next week. Today, we're going to talk about God who is able. God who is able. Kind of my subtitle today is God's sufficiency for his kingdom building. God's sufficiency for his kingdom building. <clears throat> and God is able. Let's read Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read in verse 20 and 21 today. This is We've been talking through, since the beginning of the year, this prayer, verse 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. This prayer that Paul's been praying, and now Paul kind of gives his doxology, you know, his glory be to God, as kind of his ending to this prayer. And this is a very common style of praying, particularly during this time, and uh, both in the, in the text and in the Old Testament as well, and... and um, very common to seek some of these key features. I'm not going to work through those, but you have like glory being acclaimed and reason for that glory and, and so on and so forth, and then an amen at the end and, 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 and such. But uh, this is very common, and Paul is now kind of bringing to a close this prayer. Before he's going to move in, you can see very clearly kind of a, a dichotomy between the beginning of Ephesians and Verses, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6, where Paul's been talking about a lot of theology in chapters 1, 2, and 3. A lot of very solid gospel truths. And then now, moving into chapter 4, he's going to give now the, now what? Right? This is, this is the truth. Now what do we do with that? How should we live in light of that? Uh, and so that's where we're going to be going next week. So right now, we're kind of at that hinge point, you know, uh, where we're going to kind of move into the next phase after this passage. But this is an incredible couple verses for which to end, kind of the, see the closing of the first section of Ephesians and then opening up to the next part of Ephesians. So let's read verse 20 and 21. Paul says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's, let us pray. Father, You are more abundantly able to do beyond what we could ever ask or even think. That is the God that we serve and the God that we call upon when we pray. This is the God that we read about in the scriptures. The one who is able to do abundantly more than we ask or we think. And Father, it's to you that all glory belongs. Both in this church, beyond just renovation church, and to your church universal for all times and in all places. And Father, of course, in your Son, Jesus Christ. And this is due to you as generations collapse upon generations. Father, forever and ever. And let it be so. Amen. So today, as we think about this passage, we, as we've looked at in the past couple verses, particularly last week, we know that God loves us. That's what we talked about. We talked about living moment by moment knowing that God loves us. So we know this. We know this to be true. But amidst the pressures of everyday life, is our God able to help me here today? Pressures to pay the mortgage. Pressures to perform well at work. Medical results to await depression to deal with or to overcome kids to parent 
marriage is to lead and protect. So is God able to help me here, now, today? Is he, is he able to do this? And I'm going to challenge us to think through, do we, do we actually live as though we believe he is able to help me now, today? So I think all of us would agree with that statement. He is able to help in all of those times. We, we know that. But does this past week say that I know that? Or is it a mixed bag of I think I'm able to help myself and when I absolutely need it, then maybe God can help me. Or in the moments of pressure and despair, I don't turn to God. I just continue to turn to myself to help me feel better instead of trusting that God is able. So we're going to talk today about the God who is able. The one who is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. The one who is fit enough to rescue us from the pit of hell. And the one who is powerful enough to resurrect a dead body. And the one who is powerful enough to unite all things in Christ. This is the God who is able. Now before we can jump into the idea, I think, of God who is able to do more than we ask. Before we can jump into that thought there. We need to first have the right understanding of what indeed, of what indeed God is concerned with accomplishing via his ability. Does that make sense? So God has the ability to do beyond more than what we could ask, but what is God actually concerned with accomplishing via that ability? And Paul sets this up very clearly for us in the book of Ephesians. So what I want to talk about for just a few moments, this will serve two purposes. It will help us understand verse 20 and 21, and it's going to give us a little bit of a review and kind of recap and kind of help tie some things together in chapters 1, 2, and 3 so that we can move on to chapters 4. So to do that, I want you to think about two categories of people for just a moment. Those who, in this first category, those who want Jesus to improve their life. The second category of people are those who want Jesus to save their life. Okay? We all fit in one of those two categories. Those who want Jesus to save their life and those who want Jesus to improve their life. Many of us fall into the trap of desiring a, a Jesus, if you will, to simply improve our lives. Here's what this looks like. Let me paint this picture for you. I have my plans. I, have, I want to have so many kids. I want to have a certain size house. I want to live in a certain part of the city. I mean, just name it, right? I've got my ideals. I've got my plans. Or I want each day to look a certain way. I want it to be comfortable. I want it to be productive. I want to make my boss happy and pleased. Not that all these things are bad. I'm just saying. We've got these plans of how I want my life to look. Or I want to be a particular kind of person. I want to be successful. Right? I mean, who doesn't want to be successful? Or how about this? I want to be funny. I, I, I want to be funny all the time. And I've just given up that I'm just not funny. Rusty's the funny one. I'm the not funny one. We talk about how I can get like maybe one good joke a sermon. That's about it. Uh, Rusty somehow has one in every point. Sometimes I want to be the funny person. I'm just not. I just want to be comfortable. Or I want to have a high self-esteem. Right? So I have these plans. And then what we do is we go to God and ask Him to make us better in such a way to serve our desires. To serve that plan. Let me give you some examples. If he would make me more disciplined, then maybe I could get done what I want to get done. I want to be more disciplined so that I can serve my plan and my agenda. Another example, if he would make me more patient, then maybe I just wouldn't be so stressed. Now, so that's one category. And the other category is 
or in juxtaposition to, is those who want a redeemer, those who want someone to save them. I read this on, some of you know who Rob Turner is. He didn't put it exactly this way. But he said, dead people cannot be improved people. They must be resurrected people. Dead people cannot be improved people. They must be resurrected people. What do you mean by that? That people who realize that they were dead realize they need a resurrection. They realize they need to be changed. They need to be saved. And many of us just don't realize that we need to be saved. And what I mean by that, too, in an ongoing sense, that, that you still need a Redeemer even though you prayed a prayer or you were baptized or joined a church or legitimately were saved and redeemed. You still need that same Savior today, not just someone to make your life better. Resurrected people realize that they were dead and that they are now dead to self. So there's still a, a death aspect to life. I was dead in my inner man. Now I'm dead to self and alive to a new king, a new kingdom, a new perspective, a new plan, a new means or a new goal that God is going to accomplish. Not just my goals, but His plan. And so God is concerned with using His ability to unite all things in Christ to His own glory. All right? That's what God is concerned with using His ability for. Let's flesh this out. Because this is really important. If we're going to talk about the God who's able to do more than we ask or think, understand that what's going to be guiding His doing, His ability and the use of that ability, is going to be His plan, His desire, what He wants to accomplish. So with that, we're just going to breeze real quick through a few verses here in Ephesians. First of all, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. So he says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So here's the, his will according to his purpose. He set this forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to what? Unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The him is referring to Christ. He set forth this in Christ to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And we talked about this well, gosh, now like 33 weeks ago, or <clears throat> well, maybe 28 weeks ago, something like that, whenever we were in verse 9. This idea of uniting all things, let me refresh your memory here. That just like a good writer or a speaker will at the end of his writing or speaking draw all things to a point. We're talking about good writing and good speaking, Okay. I mean, I know people, lots of people like to talk, and lots of people like to write, and apparently have no point. <clears throat> but they draw, they, a good one draws things to a point. So God is doing with creation. He is taking all of creation, and is going to make a very specific point with creation. What he's doing is he's bringing into order the universe. I mean, understand, since the fall, things have been spinning out of order. You've heard me say this before. Everyone says we want to get back to the good old days. Ever since the fall, it's been a succession of very, very bad days. So if you mean I want to get back to the good days, if you mean by that pre-fall, then awesome. But I'd also say you haven't read Revelation. I don't want to get back to the good old days. I want to get ahead to the good old days. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> All right, sorry, I just had to preach for a moment. Hey, that's two funnies this morning. Look at that. Wow. God's answering my prayer, right? <laughs> All right. So God, here's what God's doing. God is taking the, the cosmos that is spinning out of order, and he's bringing it back into order, right? There are things in this earth that are hurricanes and, and, type, and tsunamis and and abortion, and broken marriages, and lust of our own hearts, and, and idolatry, and all these things are, are out of order. And He is bringing it all back into order. And when all of that is finished, what will emerge from that 
picture would be his son, Jesus, as this is the point. I am reordering all of this, and I'm going to exalt my son, Jesus. What Paul means is that in part, that God is, will unify the created order, you and I included, around Jesus. So, in chapter 1, verse 20 through 22, he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. By the way, this is partly why I'm an amillennialist, by the way, just for those of you who know what that means. Everything is under Christ's feet. It's all here. He is in authority over it all. He is reigning and he is ruling. So you see here through the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, God has conquered all powers hostile to his purpose and vanquished them at the feet of Jesus. He's taken them all and made them subject to his feet. And then verse 22 going on in the second part of verse 22, he says, And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So now you have this idea of the church coming into the picture. The church itself, think about this, is comprised of people who would formerly be enemies and aliens, hostile to one another, out of order. I mean, just, just look around at a lot of churches around us. I mean, you just see it. Just plain as day, fighting and, and disunity and all this. Because because this is where Paul's going to go. He's going to talk about unity of the body of Christ in chapter 4. Why? What does that unity represent? It represents God's cosmological reordering in a very microcosm example. You know, I had a, there was a church that, I remember exactly the names, but close to where I served in Kentucky, and like, there was a church, and then like a church split, and then like a second church split, so we had like three church buildings, all within like a mile of each other, and I'm no kidding, at least one of them's name was Harmony, and the other one's name was Unity, uh, and I forgot what the third one was, was, we're just crazy, I don't know, but that's not, so this is the church, but God is reordering these things. These people, this chaos, is brought to order in Christ. I mean, we talked about last week how we're meant to understand more fully the love of Christ through unlike people being brought into unity together. We experience that. But these people, this chaos, is brought into order in Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. It says, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 6, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I want to take you outside of Ephesians for just a moment here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. Listen to these words. When all things are subjected to Him, it's Jesus, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, that's God, who put all things in subjective under Him, that God may be all in all. So God is reorganizing the cosmos into order so that at the end of the time, as we know it, Christ will emerge as the point of all of God's creational work. All of the order says, look at our king. Look at Jesus. Then, as it's all subjected and united in Christ, the Son will be subjected and everything underneath him to the Father, that the Father's glory may fill the earth. This is what God is concerned with using his ability for. This is what he will use his power to accomplish. This is his goal. This is his plan. This is the focus of his ability and his power and his work. It is accomplishing that. This passage is not for us to just dream up our own plans and simply ask God to bless them. I would argue this. We have weak appetites. 
We have terribly little dreams, and we have pathetic visions for our families and our lives. Listen, we desire to make it to the weekend or just to make it to the evening, but God desires that all things be ordered in such a way that it screams, Jesus is the point. And we just want to make it to the evening or to the time to sit on the couch. This is God's desires. We desire for God to just help us be better people. But God desires that your heart, soul, mind, and strength are subjected totally and exclusively to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that He might fill you with all His fullness and fill the earth with His glory. That's His dream. That's His vision. That's what He is concerned with using His ability to accomplish. I would just challenge us. You know, in the spirit of C.S. Lewis's quote, you know, where we're just desiring mud pies in the slum versus a holiday at the beach, I would challenge us to, what vision do we have? What plans do we have for our lives? Thank God he's not subjected to our plans, as we'll talk about today. He is not under the authority of our praying. He is above the authority of our praying. Thank God. This is what God is concerned with using his ability to accomplish. This is why God takes dead people, Ephesians chapter 2, and resurrects them so that he can accomplish this plan. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what God is aimed, has his heart set on doing, his power set on doing, his will has decided this from eternity past, and this God is able to do that. And here's the thing, the reordering of this universe, creation functioning as it's supposed to, you and I not slaves to sin, but living the lives we were meant to live is what's most good for us. So let's talk about how much this God can do. And I want to remind you, this is our hope. If God is not able to accomplish what we just talked about, uniting all things in Christ, then just go back to hoping for a better day tomorrow and just to get through and make it to the weekend. Because there is no hope beyond that if God is not able to accomplish this. So our first main point today is that our God is able to do immeasurably more. I even left that one filled in for you. God is able to do immeasurably more. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So the work, the word for able here actually comes from the same Greek word for power. So you think like the extent of his power, like he is able, he is powerful enough is what he's kind of aiming at here for us. And it says that God is able to do immeasurably more. Here's a, maybe a better way to phrase that for you and I. Infinitely more. He's able to do infinitely more. So God is able to do immeasurably more. More than what? The first one is this. He can do more than we ask. God is able to do more than we ask. Ask. Thank God he can do more than we ask. Look at verse 20. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. Let me give you kind of an implication here. Asking of the Father comes from from our trust in the Father. Asking of the Father comes from our trust in the Father. Why don't you think about this for a second? 
I mean, Paul is asking these things of the Father, and he believes that the Father can do something about these things. You see, we ask from those whom we trust can and want to provide, that they can do it. Because we are meant to ask things of the Father. We are meant to ask Him. This is, Paul's not saying don't ask because he can just do more. No, Paul's saying he's, you certainly ask. I just got to modeling asking the Father for you. But just know that he can do more. But I want you to just focus on the first thought here that we're meant to ask things of the Father. The very result of knowing that you are loved by the Father should be the asking of things from the Father. Let me say that again. The very result of knowing that you are loved by the Father should be the asking of things from the Father. Asking of things from the Father, I think, is actually an expression of our trust that the Father indeed does love us. That we would even ask things from Him. We believe that He can do them and that He wants to care for us. How much does our self-sufficiency and I can provide for myself what does that say about our trust that the Father loves us? I can just do it on my own. I'm good. What are we saying? My love for myself is stronger than God's love for me. And that's, that's, a, that's a sad place to be, to be honest with you. But our Father who loves us, we should ask things of Him. We're, again, we're going to define that as we go. But the, the thing, uh, kind of the main point here is that God's care or ability is not limited to what we ask. It's not limited to what we ask. Listen to this. Our humanity is too limiting in our requests for them to govern God's responses. Because we are human, even if we were free, even in our freedom from sin, our requests are still too weak and too finite to govern God's responses. Listen to me. We ask often for the wrong things. I mean, I mean, thank God that He doesn't answer all our prayers the way we want them. We want success when we really need humility. We want comfort when we really need to be driven to rest in Jesus. Or we want control when we really need to trust that God is in control. Thank God He doesn't answer those prayers the way we oftentimes ask them. We ask with human abilities to foresee and assess but God answers with divine abilities to foresee and assess. He's not limited, and thank God. He knows what is eternally important for us to be a part. Like He knows what's eternally important and what needs to be orchestrated in order for us to be a part of the plan to say that Jesus is the point. He knows what that's going to take in our lives, in the the cosmos, to reorder things so that we are a part, those who are redeemed are a part of saying that Jesus is the point. You and I don't know all those things. So the question, what all do you ask the Father for? What is the habit of your prayer life? What does it say? Does it say that you trust that He loves you? Does is your prayer life Thy kingdom come, or is it my kingdom come and thy, my will be done? What, what does your prayer life look like? And you trust when God doesn't answer it the way you want Him to answer it. Second thing is this. So God is able, immeasurably more, He's able to do more than we ask. And two, He's able to do more than we can think. He's able to do more than we can think. Think. Verse 20, now to him he was able to do far more abundantly 
or infinitely more than all that we think. This is encouraging to me. I don't know about you. His ability is not limited to our thinking ability. Have you thought about that? Like his answering your prayers is not limited to your thinking ability. Then your imagination, the things that you can think of, the way this situation could turn out best. His thinking is beyond that thinking. Your best scenario, your best plan of how the day should turn out or how life should turn out or what your family should do or what that person should respond with whom you're sharing the gospel with. His thinking, his planning is beyond your thinking. Just like his love surpasses our knowledge, we just studied that, his doing surpasses our requests and even our imagination and our thinking. Romans 8.38. So think about how this is coupled with this verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But his thinking is beyond our thinking. Thank God his definition of all things given to us is not our thinking limited finite definition of all things. Does that make sense? He defines this with a mind that is infinitely greater than yours. Listen, let's couple this, let's couple this with God is good. Hey, did I just have a third funny? That was a third funny. God is good. Listen, God is good. Let's couple this idea with God is good. This allows me to believe that God's plans are good even if He doesn't answer my prayer in the way that I want it. You see, my thinking about what is good and what is best is not always right. Like, I know, that's like super profound, right? But some of us need to realize and need to write that on the mirror that my thinking about what is good and what is best is not always right. We walk around assuming that that's the case. Most of us do. Many of us live as though our thinking and planning is always best. Why else would we get so upset when someone challenges it or it doesn't happen our way? It's because our working assumption is that our plans are right, my plans are best. But God's thinking and assessing is way beyond our ability to think or assess or plan. Thank God for that. We have all these ideas of what will make us happy. If we could just have the right behave, the rightly behaving kids. If I could just sit on the couch without stress. If I could just manage my emotions well. If I could just be physically fit. And time and time again, we find ourselves empty, even when we succeed. Thank God that He is not limited to our understanding and what we pray for out of that understanding. He is not limited to that. Thank God. But God is good. So when we think about trials, and we think about losing someone, and we think about the death of this last song that we just sang, you know, it made me think of potential future life loss and previous life loss. And this, God's ways are so far above mine. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't try to understand, right? We talk about strength to comprehend. Strength to comprehend. Paul wants us to have strength to comprehend. But in the midst of strength to comprehend, his ways are above our ways. So try to comprehend, but His ways are still above our ways. Thank God. He knows how to work it. He knows the plan. And Paul is telling us that He is able. And 
And God is able to do immeasurably more than we ask and more than we think. And He is not governed by either one of those limitations of our humanity. Second main point is that only God is able to do more. Only God is able to do more. God will do more, first of all, because of His sovereignty. God is able, is the only one able to do more, and it's because of His exclusive sovereignty. Come with me to chapter 3, verse 20, as we work through this verse. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power. Right, let's just linger here, that phrase, according to the power. Listen, God's power is the expression of God's sovereign force in creation. Let me explain that. Power is a, as an outworking of God's sovereignty. So when God works in creation, His power at work in creation is an expression of His sovereignty. So to speak of God's power at work is the outworking of His character as the only sovereign one. Okay? Follow me there? So God alone is sovereignly working. He's the only one. He's the only one able to accomplish this, uniting of all things in Christ. But then how much do we think that we alone can accomplish? Right? Even if our plans are good and they're, and they're according to the Scriptures. I'm sovereign to do this. No, we're not. There's one sovereign. His name is God. And He is the one who is able to do more. So Paul wants us to see that God will use His sovereign power to bring about more than we could ever ask or think. So Paul's saying He has the ability to do it. He has the power to do it. And He has this exclusively. So only God is able to do more because He is sovereign, but also because He will do it Himself. He will do it Himself. Have you ever said, if I want it done, I'm just going to have to do it myself? Has anyone ever said that? Raise your hand if you've said, have you said that. Everyone said that? If you just want it done, I'm just going to have to do it myself, right? That's how I started off ministry when I first became a youth pastor. Came in and I thought, you know, I was, I was 18 years old. And I was like, if I'm going to get it done right, I'm going to do it myself. So I laid off all of my Sunday school teachers. Uh, and I just, I'll just teach them all. Now, I'm not kidding. Not kidding. Thank God I learned that lesson then. I just want it done. I'm going to have to do it myself. Listen, no one can truly say that except for God. No one can say that except God. And God can say that. If I want it done, I can do, I'm going to do it myself. And thank God He said that, right? Thank Him, praise Him that He said, I want this done, I'm going to do it myself. It says, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power, obviously this is His power, at work within us. So His power at work within us. See, this, I think this is where this begins to get even more exciting. So he is going to do, listen to this. Everybody look at me. He is going to do more than we ask or imagine for the purpose of uniting all things in Christ. And He is going to do it himself and he's going to do it himself within us do you hear that he's going to do it himself within us you see the church is the means by which god is going to fill and transform creation to be filled with his own fullness 
The church is the means that he's going to accomplish this with. I know this seems maybe a little crazy because we've been so trained to think and find value only in that which is worthy of publication. Follow me here for a second. Only the crazy success stories make it to primetime television, right? Only the greatest accomplishments make it to social media trending. Right? We only, is this, we only look for God's hand in the miraculous when we should be looking for His hand in the faithful. Because the faithful is just as miraculous as what we deem miraculous. You see, we have a hard time thinking about God doing all of this, uniting all things in Christ, because we keep looking for the blinding light of, of the Damascus Road, or we keep looking for the, the, this crazy stuff that we've defined as only that awesome, miraculous things are the things that God does. Let me give you another example. We only look for God's provision at the end of the rope instead of the rope itself. The whole rope has been His miraculous provision. We are so bent toward getting a thanks or being recognized that we often miss out on what God is doing. Because we have this idea that only the things that get recognized, only the things that get seen are the things that are of value, are the things that God is doing. So we have a hard time acting without recognition, or we have a hard time persevering without results. We have a hard time with faithfulness when no one applauds. We have a hard time serving when no one shows gratitude. But listen, it is indeed in the faithful, the perseverance, the servitude, the acting, that God is working His power through us and filling the world with His fullness as He unites all things in Christ. He is at work doing this in the faithful, the perseverance, the things that go oftentimes unrecognized, unseen. We just got to stop thinking. And I'm and like, listen, I, I know. Like we go to like, this is how we, this is kind of how we get spiritual about this. We We go to the doctor and and the doctor does some, he, you know, does some surgical work and, and there's some healing and, and we go, okay, awesome. Well, that was a miracle of God. He, the miracle of God is not just someone walked in and prayed and the person was healed, although that would be awesome and very possible. <clears throat> but maybe God worked miracle through the surgeon, through the doctor. He does that. Praise God. That, I think that is very much an example. I'm saying don't let that train of thought stop there. It goes beyond that. It goes into what is keeping your heart from just utter idolatry today or yesterday? What is persevering you through this trial, trial and this hard time? That's God's miraculous work. That's God uniting all things in Christ, taking you another step down that road. He's doing that through us. I'm saying, don't Don't set your eyes on the things the world says to look at. God works through the one who's resting at his feet. Like, he doesn't just work work through the one who's just busy. Not Not that it's bad to be busy and doing things, but our world says that God's concerned with only those things, only the big grand things. I mean, you see this in churches. You know, wh- which ones get the limelight? Well, it's the ones that are huge. It's the ones that have lots and lots of people. And praise God for some of those churches. I mean, praise God for that. God does that. But that's not the only place that God works. In fact, I'd argue it's not the primary place that God works. He didn't go after Roman leaders when he came, he came after poor fishermen. So we need to know these kinds of things 
and have our eyes set on Him working His power to do more than we could ever ask or imagine through us. We need to know this and be reminded of this if we are to endure in this church. If we are to endure as a church, and if we are to endure as the church, as in individuals enduring. God works in ways well beyond our finite wisdom and perception. What we perceive God doing, He works well beyond that. Guys, our church doesn't ever have to be huge for God to use it as a piece in His uniting all things in Christ. Amen? It doesn't. It doesn't. Your life doesn't ever have to be recognized by human eyes in order for it to be used by God's hand to unite all things in Christ Jesus. If no one on this earth ever says a thank you or recognizes the work that you've done, God can still use it to unite all things in His Son, Jesus. Like, I know you're looking at me going, I agree. I agree, right? But then, like this week, when it goes unrecognized, by human eyes, how will your heart respond? This is where the rubber hits the road. We have to think about these things throughout the week. You need to know this when you don't get the thanks for your servitude or the appreciation for your sacrifice. I'm, I'm talking whether that's in the church, that's at work, that's picking up a piece of litter on the side of the road, or, or giving money to a poor person, a homeless person, or that's doing something for your children that no one will ever see except for your kids, but they happen to forget it five seconds later, right? Don't you love that? You like give them like the coolest thing in the world and like the next second they're like whining about like the dumbest thing. Like, did you not just see I gave you the keys to heaven, my son? You're whining about wanting a stupid cookie. Right? But, but, but how, how, how true is that in our own hearts, though? I mean, that's what Paul's telling us. He's giving us the keys to heaven. Like, this uniting all things in Christ is like handing us the keys to heaven. Say, so here you go, my son. My dreams, my visions, my plans, my, my, my imagination, my thinking is well beyond yours. Why, why does Jesus say, thy kingdom come? Because he understands that. He doesn't need his kingdom to come. Why? Because his kingdom is God's kingdom. And, and the more quickly our kingdoms align with God's kingdom, the more quickly and ably and with joy we can say, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. Get here as quickly as possible, your kingdom come. It's like having the keys to heaven. See, God is sovereignly working and personally working through you and me to bring about the uniting of all things in Christ Jesus. This means, listen to this, this means He has put you in this church for that reason. He's put you here in these shoes, in this, in these shoes. I was thinking pews and chairs, shoes. These chairs, with these crazy elders, with these people, for the reason of uniting all things in Jesus Christ. He has done that. And for however long He keeps you here, it'll be for that purpose. And He will do more than we could ever ask or imagine to that end. He has put you with the spouse He has given you for that reason. To unite all things in Christ. 
particularly the spouse example, is to display the glory of the gospel in Jesus' relationship with his bride. Or he has kept you single to this point for that reason, to unite all things in Christ. And as long as he keeps you single, it is for that purpose, to unite all things in Christ. And he will, he will work his power within you to that end. Or he has given you the kids he has given you. However he has orchestrated that. For the purpose of uniting all things in Christ. However long he leaves those kids with you. It's for the purpose of uniting all things in Christ. And he is powerfully at work within you to do that. Second Corinthians 3.18 says this. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being what? Transformed. What's it transform? What is it? Uniting all things. One part of that is us being transformed into the same image. The same image, get it, guys, the same image that we with unveiled face are beholding. Like, same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As in each and every moment of our lives, that makes us question how such a minute, humble, challenging, or seemingly insignificant thing could be so important, we see God's glory displayed, His power at work in the most seemingly unimportant things. The reality is is that He is personally and sovereignly at work in us. Third and final point is this. God is worthy of all the glory. That's what Paul says. Verse 21. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So God is worthy of all the praise that comes as a response to his marvelous work. Now, Paul is not, is not saying, like, God should get this glory. God is saying he has this glory. Like, it's his. It's, it's his. It's, he owns it. And first he says that it's due him in the church. You know, from the church and in the church, the glory is due to God. To God the Father. Now, the church is God's chosen means to unite all things in His Son for all eternity. Right? So it's, it's in the church that God's going to unite all things. This is primary vehicle by which He's going to accomplish this. It's in the church. Guys, it's in the church where the Word is taught. The Word is a revelation of God. So what's being taught in the church? What are we talking about today? Who is this God? So it's in the church today that we're learning this God who is uniting all things in His Son, Jesus. It's in the church that this people, these people learn to yield to the Spirit moment by moment. That's part of this cosmological uniting and reordering of all things in Jesus. It's in the church that these people are in turn strengthened with power to be used by God to accomplish this task. It's in the church that these people are then indwelt by Christ. And it's in this church or in the church that, the, that His people are filled with the fullness of God. It is the church that then spreads the glory of God to fill the earth. Guys, Adam and Eve, they're were, they were meant to multiply and go fill the earth. Why? Fill the earth with the image of God. They were to bring order to the entire earth, spreading the image of God. I think that same concept is repeated by Jesus in Matthew 28 when he says, go make disciples of all nations. What's he saying? 
Go fill the earth with the fullness of God. Go fill the earth with the image of God. Go fill the earth. So the church is God's means by which He's going to do this. But whatever happens through the church, it is because what? His power at work within us. And so He gets the glory for all of its happenings. All the things that take place. The second thing is he says glory is due him in the church. And secondly, glory is due him in Christ. The church is Christ's body, right? The church is Christ's body. So if there is glory in the church, there's glory in Christ. Amen? You see that? What, is, what else is Paul doing here? He's also affirming our union with Christ. He's affirming that we are indwelt by Christ and and. Y- uh, united with Christ. Because those who are in the church are recognized by God as having the identity of Christ. As His body, His attributes are accounted to us. His righteousness, His holiness, His life. And whatever we do, it's to His glory. I mean, we need, listen, we need both truths. We need the truth that he represents us and that we represent him. It's a both peace. It's a both and. I mean, do our actions and thoughts bring him glory? How much does our lives actually seek to steal glory from God? We do things and we rob him as if we could from glory. We believe that God is willing to do more than we ask or imagine because He loves us. But listen to this. Even more so because it's for His glory. I believe God is willing to do more than I ask or imagine. Certainly because He loves me. But even more so because He is worthy and desires and is jealous for His glory. As I rest knowing that God is willing to use His power for me and for those who are in Christ because He is passionate for the glory of His Son who represents the wonders of His love and the beauty of His own nature. Guys, the one who loved us and gave Himself for us is an expression of the character of the Father. He's His exact imprint. Third and final sub-point here is that glory is due Him forever. Forever. Listen. God will always have zeal for His own glory. He will always. And He will secure and do whatever it takes to secure His own glory. He will always do what brings him most glory. Paul means forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Ages upon ages, generations upon generations. As I prayed earlier, as a, one generation collapses, collapses and another generation emerges, God will be desireful of His glory. As there will never be a moment when His glory is not due Him. So let me give you a few examples. There will never be a moment when you are struggling, whatever it is that He is not worthy of praise for His glory. Remember, His mind is above yours. He's not limited in perception by your perception. He is worthy of glory no matter what. There will never be a moment when you are sinning and He is not worthy of praise for His glory. He's not being glorified by your sin, but He is not affected 
concerning the glory due His name by your sin. Praise God for that. There will never be a moment when He is not working through you to bring Himself glory. Do you hear me? If you're a child of God, if you have been redeemed, if you are loved by the King, then there will never be a moment when He has stopped working through you to bring Himself glory. You hear that? There is never a moment in your day that God is not zealous for His glory and seeing that displayed through you. There's not a moment, nor will there ever be a moment, when He ceases to be desireful of displaying His glory through you for all eternity. Every moment of every day, He desires that and is working through you to do that. Talk about what weak dreams and weak visions we have for our lives. What about a dream or a vision for a life where moment by moment my life is fully displaying the glory of God? What about that? Let's have big dreams. That kind of dream will last forever. The dreams of a big home, the dreams of nice cars, and the dreams of healthy families, and all the, I mean, not that those things are bad, but listen, let's not settle for that. It's, look, the, even the health of our family, like, one day that'll all be fixed. Like, this will go on for eternity. I will be a display of God's glory. There will never, fourth example, there will never be a moment when He is not working through you to do immeasurably more than you can ask or even imagine. What about that? What about that? Tomorrow when you get up and you get ready to go to work, God is at work in you to do immeasurably more than you could even ask Him for at any moment that day. Or He is at work to do more than you could even think at any moment that day. Let's have big dreams. Every moment, no matter the situation, He is able. He is doing more than we could ever ask or imagine. And He is glorious. So to kind of wrap this up with this question, what are you looking for? Do you want a Jesus who will simply improve your plans that you've developed and conceived of with your finite and limited thinking and imagination? So you want God to just kind of come in and help you do a little bit better job with what you thought of? Or do you want a Jesus who will resurrect your dead life and do more than you could ever imagine by aligning your life to highlight that Jesus is the point. What do you want? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are able to do more than we could ever imagine. And we could ever ask, Father, that you're not limited, that you are not restrained, that you are not held back. Father, that, that your conception or your conceiving of, of plans and stuff is not limited to or under the authority of our thinking and planning and conceiving. Father, praise you that you, Father, that you alone are powerful enough to bring that into existence. That you alone are powerful enough to make that plan that you've conceived of happen. That you alone are sovereign in that, Father. We are not sovereign in that. 
Father, forgive us when we think that, first of all, that our plans are ultimate, that our desires are always best. And Father, forgive us then, whether it's with our plans or your plans, that we think that we are sovereign enough to do it ourselves. Father, please forgive us of that. And Father, turn our eyes from from glorying in our own misperceived sovereignty to glory alone and your reality of sovereignty. Now, Father, we believe that you are glorious and you are worthy of glory forever. As you will work in us to display your glory. Father, we are thankful for that. I pray that that we would stop settling for such, such small dreams and small visions and small plans and that we would only settle for your plan to unite all things in Jesus and what that might look like in our lives. Father, give us Give us a glimpse and more glimpses of what you see and what your plan is. That we might be captivated. That there would be delight in being obedient to you, Father. That we would find that it is most delightful and we are most obedient to you, Father that the cosmological reordering of this place, uh, that we would desire to be a part of that. Uh, May we be a part of uniting all things in your Son, Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.